Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. If you enjoy today's program, please be sure to subscribe on all the different podcasting applications that are out there, whichever one is your favorite, and please leave uh, us uh, ratings and reviews. Typically, I am joined by my intrepid co-host, Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, but Doug is unable to join us today. He's he's off prepping for the apocalypse because he's heard that we are about to have massive uh, blackouts throughout the state of Texas and civilization is going to end. So here to talk with us uh, about that. Our impending destruction and doom is Joshua Rhodes, who is a research associate with the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin and a senior energy analyst with Vibrant Clean Energy. Did I get that more or less correct? Yeah, that's right. All right, good. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. So uh, we'll get to the doom in a moment, but first, so we have discussed electricity on this program a couple times before including the ERCOT market. However, just as a little bit of a refresher for some of our listeners, I think it might be a good idea to just kind of give a brief overview of how the Texas electricity market works because it's different than most other parts of the uh, of the country. Uh, so why don't you just walk us through how how the Texas market works? Sure. So yeah, so the the, the ERCOT market that serves about 90% of Texas is, is different from most other electricity markets in the U.S. and abroad um, for the fact that it's a energy-only market. And what that means is that power plants are really only compensated or paid for the energy that they produce and push to the grid. Now, there are other um, there are other markets that have these things called capacity markets, which do pay power plants to be available to put energy on the grid, but they might never actually do it. And so that's kind of the main difference between the two. The existence of the capacity market in other jurisdictions, I guess the the idea there is that, well, what is what was the typical justification for why you have a capacity market? Why not just uh, energy only, right? Sure. So I'll take a step back and kind of talk about how the minute by minute operations of the market work and how that relates to these decade long decisions that people need to make in terms of if they're going to build power plants. And so the way that, um, and this is the way that most electricity markets work is, um, is power plants every either five or 15 minutes, they tell the grid operator, which in Texas is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas or ERCOT, all the power plants in Texas tell ERCOT, you know, I can provide this much power at this price. And then that all goes into a big auction type process. And then what ERCOT does is they order all the power plants from cheapest to most expensive. And then they dispatch the power plants that will, pro- that will meet demand, that will, um, all the capacity that they're able to provide will match all the demand that everyone out there has for air conditioners and lights and computers and et cetera, using the cheapest power plants available. And so if you are below that price of the highest generator with the last one that is dispatched, who we call the marginal generator, then you're dispatched and you're told to produce power and you're paid for that power. If you are a higher price than the marginal generator, then you're not dispatched and you're not getting paid because you're not providing power to the market. Now this creates, because demand is going up and down 
um, as more air conditioners come on, um, as we wake up in the morning, et cetera, all the demands and things that we have. That changes which one of these power plants is actually the marginal generator. So that price of electricity is changing every few minutes in ERCOT. And so the idea behind a, um, a capacity market is a capacity market is trying to bridge the link between that minute-by-minute change in electricity price uh, or revenues that power plants would get and the you know, decade-long decisions that developers have whenever they're building either a gas plant or a solar farm or, or, or whatever. And what a you know, capacity market does is it's, a, it's also a, a bid process. And so power plants bidding capacity to this, to this market. And then um, the market operator says, I want to have this much capacity available. And then you know, those power plants get those payments, even if they're not, again, even if they're not producing electricity. We've seen some um, really high prices in ERCOT last week. And I don't know if you want to get to those now or if you want to talk about those later. Uh, yeah, uh, I would like to talk about them, but uh, I just want to lay the groundwork a little bit because well, I guess one of the key differences between electricity and other markets is that there's currently minimal ability to store electricity. There are some batteries or whatever, I guess. But um, for the most part, you know, as you described it, supply and demand have to be matched up in, in real time, right? The electricity needs to be there when the demand needs to be there. And since um, your maximum energy demand or electricity demand is going to be quite a bit higher than your minimum or typical energy demand, you know, if, uh, if you think about how much electricity people are using in a, on a summer day like today in August in the late afternoon versus how much they might use in, I don't know, a, a mild spring day at night. That's a pretty big difference. And that means that during those periods, you're going to have to have a lot of spare capacity that's just sitting around, not being used, waiting for those peak periods. Am I right so far? Yeah. And so because, you know, we only, like you said, there's there's limited or the storage on the grid is a rounding error at this point. Right. And so, you know, anytime someone flips on a light switch or fires up a computer, I mean, some power plant somewhere on the system has to speed up to produce more electricity in order to meet that demand. And so it, it is a just-in-time delivery of that energy. And um, yeah, if, if supply and demand get out of whack, if they're not equal, then uh, bad things happen. Right. And so since we have to have a lot of generation capacity that for most of the year is is just not going to be doing anything. You know, there's a question of well, how, how does that get paid for? And it sounds like in in some jurisdictions they use this capacity auction to make sure that it's paid for. Whereas mm-hmm. in in Texas, it's done through I guess uh, market pricing. How does it get paid for in Texas? Yeah. So the way energy only markets, you know, incentivize people to have power plants available, even if they're not operating very often is through a scarcity pricing mechanism. And so what that means is when supply gets really close to demand, when overall total supply, the total amount of power plants we have on the system gets close uh, or demand gets close to, um, to, that, to that value, ERCOT has a price multiplier or inflator. It's not really a multiplier. It's a price adder. It's called the operating reserve demand curve or the ORDC. And so when reserves get to a certain point, it automatically inflates the price that is being paid by the grid. And that can go all the way up to the market cap, which is $9,000 a megawatt hour. And the average cost in ERCOT is only you know, in the $20s and $30 per megawatt hour. So it's a lot more than 
the average price that the market is clearing at. And what this does is it sends a market signal saying, hey, the capacity is valuable right now. Um, if you're thinking about building you know, a peaker, which you know, may only operate you know, a few tens of hours per year, that price signal is designed to make it worth your while to build that generation capacity and have it available when it is, you know, when it's when it's needed. So one of the the big issues that you, has caused a lot of consternation and discussion here in Texas has to do with something called the reserve margin. Explain a little bit what is the what is the reserve margin and how does that factor into what we we're just we we've, we've been talking about. Yeah, so every year the grid operator calculates what they predict their peak demand is going to be. And then they look at how much power plant capacity do they have available. And then what is the extra that they have on top of what that peak demand is calculated to be. And the percentage extra that they have is called the the reserve margin. And there are multiple um, different numbers out there for what a reserve margin should be. So the um, NERC or the North American Reliability Council calculates that the reserve margin should be around 13 and three quarter percent. Explain when they say should be for, for economic reasons, for aesthetic reasons, what is that based on? It's based on a loss of load probability. It's based on we don't want to lose load more than one time in 10 years is essentially what that's uh, based on. It's, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's a, it's a measure of you know how much, how much extra do you need in the bank in order to ride through a rough time. Um, and that's what they you know, kind of calculate it to be. Now, there's been some other work that is done that has looked at ERCOT specifically, and they've calculated that the economic optimal reserve margin is about 10 and a quarter percent. So Brattle did a study um, last year and looked at, given what we calculate as our value of lost load, which is the equivalent to the market cap or $9,000 a megawatt hour, you know, how much extra capacity do we need to make sure that that only happens about once every 10 years? And so you got NERC that's saying three, 13 and uh, three quarters. The uh, Brattle study says the economic optimal is 10 and a quarter percent. And then the summer, ERCOT went into the summer with 8.7%. Reserve margin, so it went in with a low reserve margin, and a lot of that's driven by we've been retiring a lot of capacity in ERCOT. A lot of coal plants um, retired over the past few years, citing economic challenges. What I mean by economic challenges is that average wholesale market prices have been low, and the majority of that low price has been driven by low natural gas prices, which we've seen as a result of the the fracking boom. You know, gas prices have been historically low for about ten years now. And since, you know, ERCOT is about half gas generation, it does often set the price, which has uh, out, been out competing some old, older uh, technologies. I think that that makes sense. You know, the, the idea of the reserve margin is if you want to avoid blackouts, then, you know, you need to have obviously the amount of capacity on hand that you expect and demand. But you could also have, uh, I don't know, a, a power plant might need to shut down suddenly, or you could have uh, other factors and sort of to build in a margin of error to make sure there's not blackouts. I, when you talk about loss of right. load, you're, we're talking about blackouts, right? So, you know, one event every 10 years is the plan that, that, that that's what the estimate is. So as you mentioned, the Texas reserve margin has been declining recently because of retirements due to low electricity prices, which I like. I'm a fan of low electricity prices. Uh, and we are now you know, b- below what these estimates say is is, is the uh, the optimal. So one argument that we've seen out there is that 
the reason why the reserve margin is falling is because new investment is being undercut by by wind or, or wind is somehow mm-hmm. uh, the culprit. So if, if you could uh, just lay out what, what is the argument there and then, you know, what is your what is your take on it? Yeah. So there's some some out there who are blaming uh, wind um, and its uh, subsidy, the production tax credit for being able to bid in very low cost power into the market and this uh, depressed prices leading to the um, you know exit of uh, other firm generators. And while it's true that the subsidy does allow wind to bid low cost into the system, in fact, they bid in negative dollars into the system because of their $22 per megawatt hour um, uh, production tax credit that they get. Even if they didn't have that production tax credit, they'd still be bidding in lower than other power plants, than, than coal or natural gas. And so that is you know, one thing. I, I don't think we would see that much of an increase in wholesale market prices. And if you actually look at, you know, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab did a study um, last year that looked at grids all across the U.S. and looked at um, what were the, the driving factors in their price formation. And about 90, 90% of the declines in ERCOT prices over the past 10 years or so have been in the de- because of the declines of the cost of natural gas. That's one of the things that really you know is 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 driving, I think more so driving price formation in ERCOT than renewables are. And, and the research that that I've done as well kind of corroborates that. Yeah, and uh, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things that always it's always struck me as a little weird about this argument is that. Well, I mean, people will say, well, the reserve margin is declining because wind is undercutting investment. Uh, but they'll also point out that during peak periods of demand, the wind doesn't blow as much. And if the peak plants are making all their money during these peak periods when they get really high prices, then, I mean, it seems like there's a disconnect there, right? Because it, it can't be the wind because they're not really competing at that point, or, or are they? Yeah, I mean... So in the in the middle of the day, wind t- does tend to die down. It does start to pick back up a little bit right before the um, right before the the peak demand, and that and that changes on a on a on a day to day basis. But when ERCOT does its calculations for what you know the reserve margin is going to be, and you know what it sees, it it derates the value of wind because it knows that it's not going to be you know available as much during the during the peak demand time. In fact, they only count about fourteen percent of the nameplate capacity of wind to be uh, available during peak demand. Now that'll be different with solar, which is starting to get built out in Texas a lot. They, they give it more of a closer to a 70% um, availability factor uh, on peak whenever they're doing their, their calculations. Which makes sense. Uh, if, if it's a hundred degrees outside, probably the sun is out, I would think. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, the sun's driving your air conditioning low, but it's also, you know, producing energy if it's, you know, hitting a solar farm. Yeah. Okay. So if it's not wind that has been causing the reserve margin to decline, what is behind it? I mean, we have really, as you mentioned, we have these really high price caps of $9,000 a megawatt hour. So, you know, you would think that as demand rises and things become more scarce, uh, they'd make, you know, generators would make more money and that would draw new investment into the grid. What do you think is going on there? So what, one of the things to keep in mind about the system is that the Texas style, you know, energy only market is a is a relatively new concept in in the broader scope of electricity, say. 
And so when the Texas legislature and the Public Utilities Commission and all of these groups wanted to create the, the leanest, most efficient market that they could, they didn't have that many data points to go off of. It's not surprising that they possibly didn't get everything right the first time, but they're kind of learning as they're going. And so one of the things I mentioned earlier, that operating reserve demand curve, the ORDC, it's been criticized as not being enough, as not kicking in fast enough or inflating prices enough during peak demand times in order to uh, you know, provide that market signal. And so the Public Utility Commission this year responded by making it more aggressive. And I think we've seen that happen this summer. And in fact, they, they did a two-step process where next summer it actually even gets more aggressive. So it kicks in at higher levels of reserves and we might, we'll probably see more scarcity pricing happen. But again, one needs to look overall over the whole year to figure out, you know, okay, there are some really high price times, but overall the market is extremely lean and efficient. Another thing that we've been seeing is that we have been seeing a lot of power plants um, retire. We've been seeing some older less efficient coal generators retire and some older, less efficient types of natural gas um, also retire. And they've been retiring in large pieces, in large chunks. And particularly whenever a coal plant retires, it takes um, a lot of capacity with it. And one of the reasons why is that whenever we build coal plants or whenever we did, whenever we used to build coal plants, to get the economies of scale that you really need, you had to build them large. You had to build multiple boilers. You needed a lot of area for the, for the piles of coal, but you needed to build high capacity plants in order to get a low dollar per kilowatt hour out of them. Because a lot of the fixed costs would be the same no matter the size of the, of the, of the power plant that you build. And so as power plants, as these older generation of power plants have been retiring, which on average are, you know, 30, 40 years old. And so they're getting you know, close to that time anyways. Um, they've been taking big chunks off with them. But modern power plants the, or modern firm generation that we have been building is, uh, has been mostly natural gas. Um, and we don't have to build them in as big of pieces to get the same economies of scale as we used to have to build those old coal plants. And so instead of building thousands of megawatts of you know, coal plants, we can build you know, hundreds or tens of megawatts of natural gas and still get the same efficiencies, the same economies of scale. And you know, as electricity demand has been, it hasn't been growing in leaps and bounds like it did in the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. In Texas, it is growing, but rather incrementally. And so to get financing for these plants, you know, you, you can't really go to a bank and say, I want to build, it, it, it's much easier to go to a bank and say, I want to build, I, I want to spend, you know, a few tens of millions instead of, you know, a few hundreds of millions. That's that been my um, experience or, when I ask the bank for a hundred million dollars, they typically do not give it to me. So I don't know. I don't, I don't get, I don't get it. I don't get it. And so those are a couple of reasons, you know, that we've, the electricity system as a whole is changing and in flux. And so, I mean, there's, there, there's multiple things, but that's, that, that's kind of, Two of the reasons we have a low reserve margin this year. Although if you look at the forecast for next year and what is scheduled to come online in ERCOT, it, it, the reserve margin is scheduled to be up about, I think, 10.1%. So a lot closer. I mean, almost exactly at that economic optimum or economic efficient uh, level for, for next summer. So uh, another thing I wanted to get your perspective on, there was a recent article in the Houston Chronicle that argued basically that ERCOT needed to give preference to uh, what was called baseload power plants. Uh, I take it that by that, they mean uh, coal or nuclear plants that operate all the time, give them a preference over 
variable resources like wind or presumably natural gas too, uh, because they have some sort of um, you know reliability benefit to the system that comes from having those plants that can be there all the time. Uh, I don't know if you saw that article, but I assume you're kind of familiar with the general argument. What what is your perspective on that? Yeah, so I mean that's basically calling for a capacity market. Um, it's basically calling for you know um, there to be some sort of of payment stream to uh, power plants that may or may not produce electricity. That's just not the kind of market that we have. And you know it's funny like everyone seems to love you know an efficient market. Or everyone seems to love a market until they don't, um, until like these these prices that have gotten so high last week. But I mean, that's that's how this market works. That's how this market sends a message that um, that capacity is is valuable. And ERCOT has backstops against that as well. I mean, if, if a power plant says I want to retire, and ERCOT deems that it it is necessary for reliability, they can issue out of market payments to that power plant to keep it around. I mean, so it's not it's not that there's not a way to do that or that this is, you know, completely wild west. I mean, I think any, any grid operator, you know, takes their charge for reliability seriously. Um, otherwise, they're not going to be around very often if they don't. But I mean, I, you know, I think with the reserve margin recovering next summer, I mean, I, I don't think we need a capacity market um, in this system. I just think we need to just get the prices right, which we've been working on. Um, and again, it, it's a young market. It's not. It's not surprising to me that there are um, that there are rough edges that need to be you know smoothed yeah. out here. And I think it is an important point to note that the way we get you know in Texas we get low power prices 350 days of the year, and the way we do that is by having pretty high prices the other 15 days or so. Uh, you know, probably not exactly right on the days, but. I did want to ask before we close. So you were recently in the Arctic. Yeah. What, yeah. So, were you just like it's too hot here, so I'm gonna. Where can I go that is not 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 uh, quite so hot? I think you might have overshot the other direction. What were you doing in the Arctic? Yeah, I got got almost 80 degrees north, about 600 miles from the North Pole. I was on the National Geographic Explorer, which is uh, pretty cool to just say. The the ship, the actual ship, um, and we sailed up. Uh, around Svalbard, which is a, a group of islands north of Norway, and went as far as the sea ice would let us go, and uh, which again was almost 80 degrees north, so about 600 uh, nautical miles from the North Pole. And the, the idea behind that trip, so I, I went with that trip uh, as part of the University of Texas, was to have kind of a boots on the ground kind of seeing climate change firsthand. And so we were there with uh, polar explorers, uh, Sir Robert Swan, who's the first guy to walk to both the North and the South Poles, and his his son, who's also um, walked to the South Pole. And there with a bunch of uh, sustainability type folks from finance, mostly from finance and business. And I was one of the only, um, and my team was some of the only engineers on the board on board. And so we were, you know, as you know, as as groups are looking to you know develop solutions to climate change and the like, uh, we're you know providing that you can't really violate the laws of physics by some of these things, and uh, you know providing some of the gut checks for uh, for some of those ideas, and also just okay, learning so myself. That's a that's a good cover story, but w- would you deny that that uh, you possibly were really up there on behalf of the Trump administration to scout out Greenland for po- possible purchase of Greenland by the United States? I mean, we were pretty close. I mean, 
I don't know how much detail I'm at liberty yeah, to yeah. go well, into I don't want here. you to violate national security yeah. or anything. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 